Good morning. So good to have you with us this morning. What is a Christian? Kind of depends on who you ask, doesn't it? If you ask the average person what a Christian is, even non-Christians, ask them the question, what is a Christian? Most of them would say someone who believes in Jesus, right? I mean, that's it. A Christian is whatever you define it to be, and most people would say it's just someone who believes in Jesus. And that is the definition that most pollsters use when they say that 80 to 90% of Americans claim to be Christians. Just believe in Jesus. That's all that it takes. It gets even more confusing when you talk about how you become a Christian, because there's a variety of answers to that question as well. And so, the waters get muddied even further when you start talking about what it takes to become a Christian, what a Christian actually is. It can all be very confusing, but interestingly enough, the Bible only mentions the word Christian three times. It's in these passages, and in all three, it seems to carry on a rather negative connotation, or at least that was the connotation surrounding the word Christian. It wasn't a positive it later became a positive, but at first, it was a term of derision. In fact, Christians in the first century didn't commonly refer to themselves as Christians. They would refer to themselves by other names, the way, the elect, brethren, disciples, believers, etc. The term Christian was thrust upon them by the outside world. And so it had this rather negative connotation, this term of derision that later took hold and became more positive. But in a very literal sense, the term Christian simply means Christ follower. So what does that look like? Well, I think we need to let Jesus answer that question. And if you look in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25, it reads, Now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I want you to notice that first line that we read. It says, now large crowds were going along with him. Put yourself in Jesus' sandals. If you were standing in front of that large crowd of people, they're hanging on your every word. They're waiting to see what you're going to do next. What would you do? What would your response be? 
Well, Jesus responds by saying, unless you love me more than your family, even more than yourself, you cannot be a true disciple. If you don't carry your cross, you cannot be a follower of mine. None of you can be my disciple unless you give up all of your possessions. When we see a crowd, we want to keep it. When Jesus saw a crowd, he got skeptical. And he says to the crowd, are you sure you're following the right guy? Are you sure you want to do this? Consider the cost of what you are doing. Jesus, so many times, looked at the crowd and he shot them straight. He was very honest. He was straightforward. He didn't start out like a lot of preachers would today and probably what I would do, trying to keep the crowd by talking about how to raise a good family, how to have a great marriage. Jesus says, no, no, you, you can't love your family more than me. He doesn't talk about how God just wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy. He says, no, you better be willing to give up everything that you own in order to follow me. He doesn't start out by saying, you know, if you just have faith in God, everything will work out in your life. No, he says, you better be willing to take up a cross and follow me, or you can't be my disciple. It's as if Jesus is standing before them saying, I know you love your family, I know you love your wife, I know your kids are adorable and they're so smart and they're so athletic, but you can't put them before me. I know you love your life, I know you love your house and your car and your possessions and all those things, but they can't come before me. I know you love your life and the pleasant life that you built here on earth, but you can't be afraid of losing it in order to follow me. And think about these words, he says, whoever does not take up his own cross and follow after me, cannot be my disciple. Do you understand the meaning and magnitude of those words? Do you understand what Jesus is saying? You know, we say things like, well, you know, I've got a spoiled brat for a child. It's just the cross I have to bear. Or, you know, I've got cataracts. It's just the cross I have to bear. That's not the context of what Jesus is talking about, right? He's saying, unless you are willing to do exactly what I'm doing, you can't be my follower. Are you willing to take up a cross yourself? Are you willing to take up that cross and follow me up a hill and be nailed to it? Because being a disciple in the first century wasn't about being a pretty good guy. It was about being willing to die, just like Jesus did. Now, I don't know about you, but I find Jesus' description of discipleship somewhat terrifying. For two reasons. Number one, because I haven't always been consistent in living out this definition. And number two, because I haven't always been as bold and direct with the crowd as Jesus was and what it means to be a disciple. I hope to change some of that this morning, but I've been guilty of putting my family first. Have you? I've been guilty of putting my possessions above God at times. I've been guilty of believing that if I just read my Bible and say my prayers before I go to bed at night, that that's, that's enough. That that's a good start. And I have been guilty of seeing a crowd and thinking to myself, how can I keep them? I'm afraid that many people have been sold on the idea that Christianity is easy. And based on our definition of Christianity, it is. Because when we define the term Christian, we see it as coming to church once or twice a week, participating in the five acts of worship, reading our Bible, saying our prayers, doing some good deeds, and that's really all that is involved. It's all about faithful church attendance, reading your Bible, saying your prayers. That's what it means to follow Jesus. In fact, 
Christianity and being a Christian has often been perverted and distorted to the point that we make it all about us and less about Jesus. We follow Jesus because he makes our life better. Better life, better family, better job, better circumstances. We look for a church that will meet our needs. And if we come in and they don't have a playground, then we're out of there. Because obviously they don't care about kids, right? We come to church and we, we desire a church that, that has good preaching, good singing, and if they don't, then we're out of there, right? We look for a church that will check all the boxes off of our list rather than coming to a church and saying, how can I dig in and help here? How can I serve here? We judge the success of a church by how many members it has. If it's big, then it must be a significant church. If it's a smaller rural congregation that doesn't have many members, then it must not be doing something right. We have this distorted and perverted view of discipleship and what it means to be a Christian. And let's face it, there are some rural congregations that have 50, 60 people that are mega churches. And there are some mega churches that the devil is running. And so we have to be careful in our judgments and our assessments. Bigger isn't always better. It's not just about coming to church. It's not just about reading your Bible. It's not just about saying your prayers. How does discipleship fit into your plans when life doesn't go according to plan? This isn't about praying a prayer and letting Jesus into your heart. This isn't about just getting baptized. This isn't about being generous with your money or, or being kind to the elderly. To follow Jesus meant being ready to die. You see, we often present Christianity as something that you kind of figure out as you, get, as you go along. Hurry up and get baptized and we'll work out the details later. And so many times we see people who are studying with someone and the one doing the studying walks them through the steps and they take out those proof texts that we have that walks them through the steps of salvation. And then we say, are you ready to be baptized? I guess so, yes. Okay, so we get them baptized and they leave the baptistry, they walk out of the church building and we never see them again. Why is that? Because we didn't do what Jesus said to do, which is make disciples. You got them baptized but they walked out of the church building without picking up a cross. And that's a major oversight on our part. It's not just about baptizing an individual. It's not just about walking them through the proof texts. It's about making a disciple. And you cannot make a disciple without taking the same approach that Jesus did. He looked at the crowd and he said, are you sure you want to do this? Do you understand what you're about to do? We don't do that. We focus on the shine of the Christian life and not the grind because we just want people to get baptized so that we can put a tally mark in our bulletin beside number of baptisms and we can sit back and feel good about ourselves. So we can reach some certain quota so we can come back from the mission field and say, look how many baptisms we've had. But how many disciples did you make? That number may be lower. But I think if Jesus shows us anything about discipleship, he shows us that you can't be afraid of them walking away. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that there is no one here this morning that wouldn't first calculate the cost before they built a new house. 
not only are you going to calculate the cost, the bank's going to, aren't they? And they're going to look up your credit score. They're going to see, based on your salary and maybe your spouse's salary, if you can afford to build this house. Because how embarrassing would it be if you started building a house or a large structure and you got halfway through it and you ran out of money? Now you have no place to live and you have no money. And think about the embarrassment of that. People in town talking about how, you know, look at this fool. He tried to build a house, got halfway done, and he couldn't afford it. Think of how sick you would feel every time you drove by it and you saw half a structure knowing that you didn't have enough money to complete it. But Jesus uses another analogy. He says, or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. What if I were to stand before you this morning and say, okay, folks, we've got a rival church down the street that wants to go against us in battle. And I think we can take it. What do you say? Are you ready? You'd have some questions, wouldn't you? You'd want to know some things. First of all, you'd question my sanity. But then you'd want to know, okay, well, who's the other church, and why do they want to fight, and why are we going to engage them, right? And even at the end, you'd still be very hesitant, if not decide, you know what, I'll go somewhere else. I don't want to be at a church that's fighting all the time. But you think about what Jesus is saying to this crowd. In use of these analogies, here's what Jesus is saying. I don't want you unless. That's what he's saying. I don't want you unless you are willing to go all the way. I don't want you until you have calculated the cost, you've considered the commitment, and you're ready to go all in. Jesus says, I want finishers. I don't want somebody who is going to go halfway and then die off and leave me. I don't want somebody going into battle with me who's afraid to die. I want finishers. I want somebody who's going to be there with me until the very end. I don't want you unless you're willing to meet the conditions. Notice again the last thing he says. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Salt is good. It was really good in Jesus' time. It was used as a preservative. It was used in a lot of different ways. It was even used as kind of money to exchange for other items. It was used in trade. But the most valuable thing about salt is its distinctiveness. If it loses its distinctiveness, then it's worthless. Salt, without its distinctive flavor or taste, is useless. Think of it this way. I didn't think this out very well, because I don't think you could see me if I put up here. We'll try down here. I've got a packet of salt here, okay? A little packet of salt you get at a restaurant. This represents us. That's our, that's our pile. At least what we should be, right? As Christians, this is what we should be. We should be this distinctive pile of salt that adds flavor to the world around us, that is distinctive, that stands out. But so many times what happens is we are covered up by this flavorless salt, and we have this huge pile, and we say, look at my pile. Look at how great my pile is. Not even realizing that our pile is worthless. It's not even worth anything because there's no distinctiveness to it, right? The distinctiveness is underneath. And we've buried it with stuff that's unimportant, at least in eternity, right? Things like our job, 
which may seem very important. Things like our, our family, which can seem very important. Things like the empire that we have built here on earth, whatever that empire may look like. That's what makes it so difficult is because those things are really precious and valuable to us, right? They mean everything to us. And so we can get away with saying, well, those things are very important, God. I mean, I can't set those things aside. And Jesus says, I'm not telling you to give them up as much as I'm telling you that they can't come before me. And anything that comes before me has to be shown its proper place. Make sense? You know, it's interesting that you can look at theologians and scholars that have studied, you know, back in Jesus' time and after, after uh, his death, burial, and resurrection, and some years later after that, there were people who became Christians that when they renounced their, their worship of idols, because remember, it was a land of many idols back in this day and time, when they renounced their, their, uh, their belief in idols and turned to Christianity, they were baptized, and afterwards, they were known as atheists because they didn't bow down to the idols. Isn't that interesting? That you'd be called an atheist, and that would be a good thing. That, that would actually be something that would be considered good and have a good connotation. Our pile oftentimes is not even worth going on a pile of manure because we have put all the emphasis on things that don't necessarily matter in eternity. How many of us have a pile that is worthless to our Lord? Again, our Lord is not saying that many of the things that we put the emphasis on are unimportant. They're just not the most important. And like the illustration we used not long ago, when, guys, you're buttoning up that shirt and you get that top button through the right slot, every other button falls into place. But you get it off kilter a little bit, and you get to the bottom and realize that your, your buttons don't line up with the slots, you start all over, don't you? This is top button living. This is about God coming first and everything else falling into place. And your family won't suffer for that. Your job won't suffer for that. Nothing suffers when you get God right and you put him first. Notice Revelation chapter 3. 15 and 16, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And the question that I think of when I read this is, can you be a lukewarm Christian? I don't think you can. I mean, would Jesus spit a Christian out of his mouth? Is Jesus going to spit a Christian out of his mouth? I don't think so. So this idea that we can be a lukewarm Christian. I don't, I don't know that you can be a lukewarm Christian. We need to be on fire for God. We need to realize and stop fooling ourselves into believing that we can be followers even though that we're lukewarm. My concern is that far too many people have accepted being lukewarm and that's good enough for them. That that's okay. The spiritual, the spiritual state that 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 is defined by lukewarm is not living up to the standard that Jesus has set. This is difficult stuff. This is, this is stuff that, that really brings things to the forefront that maybe we haven't considered or maybe we have refused to consider. What does it mean to be a true disciple? 
Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21 and following, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You want to get to know someone? Then follow them. Actually, tell them you're following, because that would kind of be stalkerish, and you don't want that. You want to know someone, follow them. Listen to them. Sit at their feet. To be a disciple in the first century meant simply you were a learner. And to be a disciple meant that you followed that person, that mentor, wherever you went, and you learned everything you could about them. You soaked them all in so that you could imitate them and be just like them. That's what Jesus is referring to when he talks about a disciple and his teacher. He is our teacher. And we are seeking to be like him in every way. That was the folly of these people he's talking about in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and following. You didn't know me. You did all these great things, but you didn't know me. You never took the time to get to know me and to build a relationship with me, because that's what it's all about. If you're going to be a true disciple, you've got to be a follower. And a follower gets to know the one that they are following in every way. It's an intimate relationship. They haven't built half a tower. They've considered the cost, and they're all in. How about you? Some of you may be sitting here this morning and maybe you made the decision to get baptized at one time in your life, but you never made a commitment to follow. You know, that's one thing that I've been contemplating for quite some time, and I've talked to some of my preacher friends about it, is the invitation. You know, typically in the invitation, we, we state if, if anyone needs the prayers and support of this church family or if anyone's ready to put on Christ in baptism, and I've witnessed it over and over again. People answer the invitation because the sermon stirred their soul. We don't really know where the person is at spiritually, but we go ahead and baptize them, and they leave our doors, and we never see them again. And I think we're doing ourselves a grave disservice by doing that. The invitation is a traditional thing anyway, right? And so how we phrase it and how we propose it, I think, we need to be more careful about. And if someone answers the invitation and wants to get baptized and we don't know about their spiritual state or we don't know where they're at, I think we need to do more due diligence to see, okay, maybe we need to study some more. Maybe we don't need to rush you in the baptistry. Because the goal is not to get you baptized. The goal is to make a disciple. And I think we need to be more diligent in that effort. I don't know. I think so many times we shoot ourselves in the foot by not presenting the cost we may have got somebody wet, but did we make a disciple? You know, I, I think when it comes to a summation, a good summation of the Christian life, you can look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And starting in verse 9, it says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. This is what I was talking about a while ago when people were baptized. Uh, they, were, they were put in the baptistry and uh, they would spit at the temples of the idols. And then they would be baptized if they renounced their dedication or their submission to these idols. And they would be baptized and then they would... Uh, they would live the Christian life from that point forward and many times were referred to as an atheist 
It's the passage where you kind of see that. There's three things here that really sum up the Christian life. Turned, serve, and waiting. You turned from your old life. Now you serve the living God, and you're waiting for Jesus to return. I mean, what a wonderful summation of the Christian life. You turn from that old sinful life. Now you're serving the living God, and you're waiting for him to come back. That's it. And so many times, we don't view the Christian life that way. We view being baptized and becoming a Christian as a way to make our lives easier. We love the Christian life. We say, well, I, I love God. And, and, and Jesus says, are you willing to follow me? And you say, oh, yes, Lord, I'm ready to follow you. Okay, but you won't even come to church on a regular basis. Are you willing to go wherever I send you? Yes, Lord, I'll go wherever you send me. Okay, but you won't even go next door and talk to your neighbor about me. Are you willing to do what is necessary in order to be a true follower? Yes, Lord, I'm ready. Okay, but I can't even get you to live a dedicated life day to day right here, right now. We love the Christian life because of what it does for us so many times. I love being a Christian because, you know, I have so many good things in my life. God has been so good to me. Praise Jesus. I've got a good job. I've got a good family. Praise God. How about when you're sick? How about when you're on your deathbed? How about when you're suffering? How about when things are not going according to plan? Then do you still love Jesus? Then are you still following? Then are you still willing to serve? When taking up your cross means going up a hill and being nailed to it, are you still faithful to follow? Have you turned? Are you serving? And are you waiting? What does it mean to be a Christian? Here it is, very simply. It means to have no plan B. To be a Christian means that I have no plan B. This is it. I have pushed my chips to the center of the table, and I am playing this hand. I can't hold on to these cards forever. I am playing this hand, and this is it. Whatever happens, happens. I have attached my life to Jesus, and if he can't get me to heaven, then I'm not going there. I'm not going to make it. I have no plan B. I have gone all in, and come what may, nothing's going to stop me. I'm not going to let anything stand in my way. I am following him all the way to heaven. Please understand that I don't present this lesson this morning because I have an axe to grind or because I believe that there are people here at Oldham Lane that uh, needed to hear it or because I think that, uh, you know, that I carry some sort of disappointment, none of that. I preached the lesson this morning because I'm afraid that Christians and non-Christians alike have been sold a bill of goods when it comes to discipleship that is absolutely false. Our definition of Christian, even in the church, is woefully, woefully short of what the real definition is. And when I read the red letters in the Bible, it arrests me and gets my attention to make me think, you know what? I'm not living that always. I'm not always preaching that. When I see a crowd, I like to keep them. When Jesus saw a crowd, he got skeptical. Why are you here? Why are you following so I'll leave you with that question this morning. Why are you here? 
Are you ready to follow Jesus? Have you considered the cost? And if we can help you in any way, maybe at one time in your life you were baptized, but you never made a commitment. Maybe you're ready to study the Bible with someone and study about the cost of commitment. Above all else, this is a church that wants to help you be right with God. And if we can do that this morning, come now as we stand and as we sing.